The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. I want to thank uh, Mara and Shelley, who covered for me when I was on retreat these last few weeks. I'll be back next Sunday night, and then I'll be uh, gone again. I'll be teaching out in Massachusetts for a week or so, and then I'll be on my own retreat for the last few weeks of May, and I'll be back that last weekend in May. We have a lot of wonderful teachers now in the community that cover when I'm gone. Really grateful for that. And one of the real benefits of doing the practice is that we get encouraged to reflect on the beautiful qualities that already exist, at least as a potential, already exist in our heart or mind. And uh, it's actually one of the most joyful things. And uh, if you're relatively new to spiritual practice, you may not know this, but there's really no way to progress spiritually, to become a happier, wiser, kinder human being without somehow figuring out how to access states of joy. So if you have this stereotype of Buddhism being a grim endeavor, you got it wrong. <laughs> it's, I mean, life, for sure, can be, in, at times, even for long periods of time, it can appear to be a grim endeavor. But that doesn't mean you're practicing when it appears that way. It just means that because of our conditioning, we can fall into periods of time where our mind is stuck or attached to you know, negative states or heavy states. But don't kid yourself into thinking that's what spiritual practice is about. Spiritual practice, at least in the Buddhist sense, is coming, helping the mind, helping the heart come into balance. And for the mind, the heart to be in balance, it means there's joy. In fact, one of the ways to think about balance in terms of having insight, so when it's said, it's taught that when our mind is in balance, then insight, like seeing what we haven't seen before, waking up, it's inevitable, can't not happen when the mind is in balance. And one of the easy ways to think about balance is there's joy, there's energy, aliveness, and there's stillness peace, equanimity, release. It's this dynamic. And, they, and it's not about peace, but it's peace with the energy. And so one of the ways that we find that balance is we have to unpack or remember the experience of love. And in Buddhism, we often use the word metta, M-E-T-T-A, metta. Because, like it or not, our word love gets overused, you know. But that's okay. I think it's okay to use the word love. But we have to, not in an idealistic way. So more of a, a basic goodness, a basic friendliness. And this basic goodness, love, friendliness, it has like one of the ways that you can recognize it, it has this unmistakable characteristic 
of expanding, right? So when you find, when you discover actual love, not a sort of a business relationship, like I'll like you if you like me, but a love for its own sake, one of the characteristics you'll notice is it just wants to expand, include. It's not particular, right? Real love, goodness, goodwill, benevolence, it's not particular. It just wants to go out and include. And the interesting thing about love is that not being particular, it's like it has a way of including any experience. So if it meets somebody that's really suffering, then it will look like compassion. If it meets somebody who's really happy, then it's going to look like appreciative joy. So it has a way of morphing or adjusting, adapting, so that whatever it's experiencing, it's very nimble. That's like that's another characteristic of actual that actual experience of the goodness of the heart. It, it's very nimble. The image that's used in the tradition that no matter the shape of a particular vessel, like a vase or a jar or a glass, when you pour water in it, water doesn't have any problem filling that particular vase or jar. Right? It just effortlessly will fill the entire space of that container. And so love is really nimble in this way. And this, uh, it points to another characteristic of metta or love is that we're not, we don't have to do it. It's such a relief. And a lot of us fall into this because we have, you know, often we have enough wisdom, enough <clears throat> presence to understand that I'm irritated or, you know, I'm not feeling very friendly. My heart's not feeling very inclusive. And then we can unfortunately slip into this kind of judging place of where I should be more loving. I should be more inclusive. And then the next step, which is just uh, down a road that's not very helpful, is then we pretend, you know, we force it. So we're on the surface or imitating a kind of friendliness. I mean, I think there is, someone mentioned this in the morning talk, there is a place for faking it until you make it. (laughs) I don't know if that's exactly right. But there is this move in life and spiritual practice where it's kind of a, a move that comes out of confidence. So even though we, our heart may feel like a, a desert wasteland or numb, nothing's there. Remember, I don't know about most of you, but I remember back when I was younger, the big hit on Broadway was Chorus Line, a famous musical. And there's a song uh, a woman sings um, about being in an acting class and the, her instructor is asking her to feel, you know, like, I don't know if any of you are actors or actresses, but something to draw on. And she would belt out the song, I'm feeling nothing. (laughs) And it goes on. And sometimes that's how we feel, like there's just nothing there. I don't feel anything. It's like numb or empty, the heart. So there's this move, this confidence that really arises out of our memory of 
actually having seen this heart filled with love, a love for its own sake. Right? And you might, it's important to be able to draw on these memories. Tom, would you turn the top two lights up a little bit more? Um, like, for example, uh, one thing that often will come to my mind is, this is like back in the late 80s, after having taught at this elementary school in Oakland for about six years, I, I left to be with a meditation teacher in New York City. And so uh, they had a party for me at the school. And I, I can still feel the effects of this hug. The kindergarten teacher was just saying goodbye. It was at the end of the party. And, uh, you know, we, we had known each other for a while. She was a lot older than me and a really good person. And she just gave me this hug. It wasn't the hug. It was her goodness of her heart, you know, was expressed through the hug. And there was no charge. There was no not needing anything back, not needing to be recognized. It was partly because I was receptive. I, for whatever reason, was ready to receive or recognize the purity of that goodness. And it and it kind of knocked my socks off a little bit. I mean, I didn't... Initially, you don't really know what's happening. You know, your, your mind, our mind tells ourselves a story like, oh, I didn't know Harriet cared so much about me or something like that. Or, you know, or maybe she's a saint. You know, she has... I don't know if you know about like in the yogic mystical tradition, there's Shaktipad where teachers would take a peacock feather and kind of give you energy or, you know, there's all these stories about things like that. So maybe it's something like that. Or maybe it's just somebody who's in a, a place, a simple place of authentic love, well-wishing, right? This, because that's the very nature of love, real love, is it's, it has this nature to move, to expand, to include, right? Like a circle of giving. And of course, it feels so healing to experience that kind of love. So, you, so right in the experience of the love going out, there's a sense of healing because what does the heart realize? It's something like, oh my God, I didn't realize there's so much good here. So there's this paradoxical feeling of seeing something that's so beautiful, so authentically good, and so impersonal. Like, it's not me. It's there, but it's not me. I think um, there's this great passage from uh, a book by um, Gwendolyn Brooks called Maud Martha. Let me just read this for you. She goes... <coughs> passage goes, Go home to your children, she urged, to your wife and husband. She opened the trap, the mouse vanished. Suddenly she was conscious of a new cleanness in her. A wide air walked in her. A life had blundered its way into her power and, she, and it had been hers to preserve or destroy. She had not destroyed in the center of that simple restraint was creation. She had created a piece of life. It was wonderful. Why, she thought, as her height doubled, why, I'm good, I'm good. She ironed her aprons 
Her back was straight, her eyes were mild and soft with a godlike loving kindness. So these simple moments where we realize this goodness in our heart, how real it is, undeniable, not personal, but there. And it really, like in a Buddhist sense, when we talk about self-esteem, feeling good about ourselves, it's not in this personal way, but it's in a sense it's personal in that we see things within our own heart, our own mind, that are really trustworthy, really beautiful, authentically beautiful, but not something I did. And this is what we need. Like In order to develop this, we have to draw on our memory where we've actually seen this kind of goodness. And it's okay if it's a little sliver. It doesn't have to be something special. Like another example I often give, um, you know, our cat died recently, so it's especially poignant now, but our cat Sumi, some of you remember, because she would often greet everybody. When Comagron was at the old place back before 2009, which is now my house with my, my partner, Wynn, um, Sumi was there. We have a picture of Sumi by the Buddha at the old place uh, in the office. You can take a look sometime. And, uh, but anyway, often when I'd come home at the end of the day, I'd pick up Sumi, our cat, and I'd just kind of hold her right in front of my heart center. I'd often stand in front of a window because she liked to look out windows. And we'd have, you know, she was sort of a skittish cat, but she'd let me hold her for a couple minutes where she'd be totally trusting and relaxed and I would be totally trusting and relaxed. And we'd have our moment or two. And there would be this very simple exchange, this circle of love, of basically both of the hearts including what's going on. Or both of the hearts being unafraid. Both of the hearts just being there without anything extra. See, that's what allows for that expansion, that welling up, that circulation, that opening. So we're not trying to, this is one of the most important instructions about cultivating compassion and love is stripping away a lot of our idealism, which ends up just being the ground for hating ourselves or judging ourselves or you know, getting frustrated. Because we think, you know, we have some ideal, some ideal image of what love is. You know, we think of Mother Teresa or, you know, whoever you think of. This amazing person who, you know, didn't really walk on the ground and just amazing capacity, fearlessness. But we have to start where our heart is. We have to draw on our actual experience of our heart being friendly. You know, maybe you had a moment with a cashier someday. Or maybe there was somebody on the bus. You know, or maybe there was a moment of healing between you and your mom. You know, maybe after years of difficulty, there's a little crack and you just recognize maybe at the same time she did when you did recognize that you actually care about each other. But probably, I'm guessing, everybody in the room has something to draw on. 
So then we've got a sort of a basic formula that we can use, right? We have this location. You don't have to use the location of your physical heart, you know, that pump. But it seems for many of us, most of us probably, that this physical center is a useful place to as a support for this practice. And then we have our memories, times when we remember the heart expressing this natural capacity to include, this natural capacity to be unafraid, this natural generosity where the heart feels generous, generous in the sense of like being able to include more and more, opening more doors, connecting, wishing well, right? So we can access, we can sort of draw on the memory and we feel the heart. Now remember, sometimes the heart feels numb, like a wasteland. Sometimes it feels you know, packed in styrofoam. Sometimes it feels cold, like cold steel. Or Joko Beck, a really wonderful teacher, she's dead now, but a Western Zen teacher from San Diego. But you can read her books, Joko Beck. Um, she had a great image, she called it the icy couch. Right? Learning how to sit, or you could lie down on the icy couch. Right? Because part of being on that icy couch is not believing entirely it's just an icy couch. certainly has the appearance of a wasteland, a desert, numbness, icy couch, right? At times, or heart. But because of, because of our confidence from our actual experience and also from seeing it in others, seeing love, authentic love, natural love, impersonal love that's real, that's there, that's healing, that's beautiful, seeing it in ourselves, remembering it at times from ourselves and others, then that, that allows for this move of confidence. Maybe it's here too. Maybe the iciness, the hardness, the closed downness of this heart, maybe this isn't the whole truth. Right? Maybe it's just the armoring or the defensiveness. Maybe with patience, maybe with confidence, we can see if there's something else here. And this is the real, goes right to the heart of loving-kindness practice or metta practice or the practice of the goodness of the heart is willing to be patient and to draw on memory, to use phrases if you want, basically to be very creative about how you keep, the important things is keeping that confidence alive. You don't want to neurotically repeat phrases, may I be at ease, may you be at ease, may all beings be happy. They can be vi- those phrases, those kind of phrases can be very useful if they're serving the purpose of keeping in mind, keeping in your heart the confidence that this heart is good, that there's a goodness here, something beautiful here, something that's capable of expanding. One of the chants we do, actually we do it every morning at 6.30. If you haven't, come by for one of the open sits. Monday through Saturday, Tom's one of our early morning leaders. It starts at 6.30 a.m. and it goes to 9. So you 
not so early birds can come for like the 8.30 to 9 p.m. sit or the uh, 8 to 9, stay for an hour if you want. But right at 6.30 at the beginning of each morning sit, Monday through Saturday, we do this four quarters chant. It's called suffusion with the divine abidings. So the Buddha suggests that we abide, we rest in four emotions of loving kindness, or you could call this that basic friendliness, metta, the basic goodness of the heart, or compassion, karuna, or appreciative joy, appreciating the goodness and the beauty in the world and in others, which we call, that the word is mudita. Sometimes this is called gladness or appreciative joy. Um, and then the fourth is upeka, uh, equanimity. So these are the four qualities of love, you could say, the four emotions of love, the four divine, beautiful abidings. And so the Buddha says, I will abide. Right? This heart, this mind, this is our resolve, our intention. Right? And you can actually use this phrase. I actually recommend that if you're going to use a phrase, then begin your formal meditation or contemplation and love with this phrase. And you can adapt it, adjust it. You can find it in our chant book, which is on our webpage, or just copy it down out of our chant book. It's on page 30. Um, I will abide, this heart will abide, pervading this first direction, the first quarter, with a heart, a mind imbued with love, with basic friendliness, with basic goodness. Likewise, the second, the third, the fourth, above, below, all around, everywhere, and every way, completely. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with this heart imbued with goodness, abundant, immeasurable, boundless, unstoppable, without any hostility or ill will, unstained, not holding, not holding back in any way. Right? So that's the resolve. That's the sort of reflection. And you'll find this, the Buddha, you know, when you look through the, dif- the different discourses, which there are many, many volumes of the discourses of the Buddha, he uses this basic reflection or contemplation or recommends it many, many times through the course of his teaching, teachings that have been recorded. This basic thing. And you do the same thing with compassion, the same thing with appreciative joy, and the same thing with equanimity. Because the the whole idea is to set it free because there is this, it's not a personal thing. Like one of the myths we have is that goodness runs out. Like I gotta be a little careful being friendly because it's gonna run out. And it's just a basic misunderstanding from a mind that hasn't studied our actual experience of love or our actual experience of friendliness or goodness. It doesn't run out. In fact, the more we find it, the more we draw on it, the more we tune into it, the more we realize it's immeasurable, immeasurable, boundless, unstoppable quality. It's like an upwelling. It just keeps upwelling, moving. And that's the interesting thing. That's what you really want to tune in. So when you have a little moment, you know, where you're sitting out and you hear a cardinal and you see, you know, or when and I were 
sitting outside today, this afternoon, and watching the little bunny. And one of our favorite neighborhood cats, gave so a poppy came, sat in our laps for a while after you left. And then she saw, poppy saw the bunny in the yard and got interested in killing it. <laughs> so Wynn carried her down to the end of the block, the cat, to get, so it wouldn't kill the little bunny that's just maybe a month or so old. But just that whole dynamic, you know, just to like open our hearts just to the spring day and the activity in the yard and that we can't control it, you know, and it's just the wildness of love. Rick gave me a poem the other day, which I really love. I'll just share it. Rick's been one of my teachers about love over the years of him coming to Common Ground. He wrote, open the heart. There is treasure buried here, love beyond belief. Earth and sky are one, just like you and I. A great wild love joins us together. Let us be this love like wind in the trees, blowing where it will. Isn't that nice? Another image I use a lot that I think is really helpful to to sense the effortlessness of love is like a a light. This is uh, partly a teaching I've gotten from um, a wonderful teacher, Venerable Analeo, this German Buddhist monk. So he talks about it doesn't matter how weak or feeble the feeling of love is in the heart. But we want to sense it as a a glow, even if it's just a feeble glow, like a weak nightlight, you know, not a beacon like a lighthouse, but just whatever it is. And then it's not like we're trying to amp up the light, but it's the practice is more about removing the barriers. Like he used the description, like you're opening opening a curtain. So whatever light there is there, you know, if, if this room were completely dark and I had a very dim light, everybody would see it. As long as I removed any barrier, right, it would stand out. Light, and it's inter- interesting how light goes out and it's no work for light. That's its very nature, right? I mean, we don't really understand light. Even physicists don't. I mean, they have theories, of course, but it's kind of magical how light just goes. And it goes fast, right? And basically, it just keeps going. You know, that doesn't, you, you might need a sensitive instrument to detect it, but light just keeps going, keeps illuminating. And that's a nice sense. And so when you do the loving-kindness practice, we're just doing our best in a very gentle way to notice that the barriers that enclose love, that they're unnecessary, doesn't need to be defended, that actually love, the light of love, it likes to ventilate, it likes sort of space to expand, to move. So we just have a sense of, and so, I mean, you can use that four quarters above and below all around, but you can also use it just in terms of 
like what comes to mind, like places in your life, ideas, people, well, no, not them. There's a great line, uh, some of you have been reading along in Sylvia Borstein's book as we've talked about these beautiful qualities of the heart. This book is Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. And she has a chapter on each of these ten paramis, including loving kindness. And she says here, if I make blessing my habit, if I meet each moment with equal benevolence, my mind relaxes and all my rehearsed reasons for resenting are redeemed by goodness. The relief of not using categories of affection, most favorite, semi-favorite, so-so, not really, not at all. As criteria for kindness invites my mind for, my, for its own benefit to forgive. Right? So we see that parsing out, like where we want it to flow, where we don't want it to flow. Yeah, for my cat, but not my partner. When they, you know, when they start treating me the way I'm supposed to be treated, maybe then I'll open the floodgates. But until then, it's closed. You know? I mean, when we, it's really great to say it out loud, like, you know, when we see those bumper stickers, you know, God bless America. You know, when we reflect, like, well, that's sort of interesting. Like, you want God's love to stop. <laughs> you know, it's like, especially borders, like between northern Minnesota and Canada, like, no, oh, no, right here, that's it. <laughs> and then don't, don't go any, no, just on this side. You know, I mean, it's really silly when we think about it in that way. Like, the barrier is like where it goes and where it doesn't go. Who's deserving of love? Like, is there actually some being, four-legged being, two-legged being, hundred-legged being, is there a being that actually doesn't deserve love? Anybody? I mean, really? Like, how could we convince her? I mean, we do it all the time, of course, when we're not paying attention to what our mind is doing. But when we're honest and look, we realize it just doesn't make sense to throw anybody out of our heart. I mean, we will do that. We're not out of the woods with that habit. But being reflective now, we can see it doesn't actually make sense. Even people who are really ignorant, and there are a lot of people who are really ignorant, and their ignorance causes a lot of suffering, right? And sometimes we're that person who's really ignorant, right? And by definition, when we're the one who's really ignorant, we don't realize we're really ignorant. In fact, one of the telltale signs that we're the one who's really ignorant is thinking that we're not the one who's really ignorant. <laughs> when we're a little bit more humble, it's a little safer territory for most of us. But when we think, no, it's not me, I'm not the one causing problems, that's not a good sign. <laughs> but when we see that somehow we are participating in the suffering in the world, right? that somehow our unawareness, our sort of conditioning, our, those the unawareness of our conditioning, thinking that the problems of the world are somebody else's fault, that the injustice, for example, in our society, the way we mistreat people, that that's other people's fault because I'm liberal or I'm progressive or I'm conservative. You know, So I'm the one with the right values. So it's those other people who are causing you know, or reinforcing these problems in our society. 
So we want to sort of break down all of the barriers. That's really the practice so that whenever we see the mind categorizing who's good, who's evil, who's deserving of our love, who's deserving to be thrown out of our heart, then we want that sort of warm, forgiving smile to arise. Like, oh, oh, honey, there you go again. And have a lot of compassion, a lot of forgiveness for that ignorance, that stupidity that somehow feels justified in hating or condemning. But instead understanding, yeah, sometimes it's like this. Sometimes people's mind, sometimes people are really afraid. Because you can't, you know, when we're afraid, when we're really caught in fear, identified with fear, we build all kinds of barriers. That's what we do. We separate ourselves because it feels threatening to be connected to the messiness of the world, the wildness of love, the wildness of including the messy world. It just doesn't feel safe to embrace a society that's this imperfect. You know, like really inhabit that we're in this world where the way we raise our food causes so much suffering, the way our economy works, the way we treat all these, I don't know if people have gone to the website, I think if you Google implicit bias test, you know, just to, it's so shocking to see, like in terms of racial difference, it's so shocking to see that despite not wanting to be prejudiced, that our mind, it can be a little brighter so we can see each other, it's so shocking to see that our mind uh, unconsciously sees people, treats people differently based on something superficial like the shade of one's skin. Even if we don't think we're doing that. Take the test if you haven't done it. It's really, really amazing. So the more we sort of see this stuff, the more our heart breaks open and we start being willing to experiment putting barriers down between us and other species between us and other human beings, people we might see as being different than us. And this is the whole process, right? When the Buddha taught loving-kindness practice, it's all about this immeasurable, boundless quality. So the work of the practice, the, the real effort, is in honestly acknowledging what appears to be a barrier, like where the love doesn't naturally flow, and then getting really interested in that. Like, doesn't the love want to move through that barrier? Right? And so we're confronting the fear, like finding a way creatively and often patiently, just sort of seeing, well, can it flow there? You know, like you could bring your least favorite politician to mind. And you might just, as a challenge, like, is there a way for this heart to include this person with compassion, with friendliness, with kindness, with appreciation, or any particular way, any way that works? I remember a president from a while back that uh, I didn't, you know, my conditioned mind found uh, lots of reasons to dislike. But then I would remember that you know, that he had a couple da- daughters 
and I would just sort of visualize him hanging out with his daughters and getting along and just that familiar, familiar love between him and his daughters. And then I could really appreciate that love and, uh, and w- wish well. Like why not wish that they have a really good relationship, really happy together? Why not? What, what is the harm in that? Sort of appreciating that about another person. This uh, teacher, Venerable Analeo, he has a, a nice way of helping us remember these four qualities. So I'll just mention it and then I'll open it up for discussion. So again, you might want a, a phrase to kind of ignite it. And I encourage you to use the words from the Buddha, which you'll find on page 30 in our chant book. But then, you know, you can re-translate the words so that they're just sort of less awkward. But I will abide pervading all directions with a heart imbued with goodness, above, below, everywhere, in every way, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, so that sense of expansion, free, not stained by any hostility, not bounded by any barrier. So that's that's the resolve. And then so and then maybe bring a memory to mind that's something to help ignite it. Feel this heart center in your body. And then we're being really patient. And so it's like we're imagining however dim, remember, it doesn't matter, however dim that there is this seed based on our previous experience that this heart is good. This heart is capable of goodness, capable of wishing well, capable of being generous and benevolent. And we're just patient, holding. It's like fanning the flames, blowing on the embers, patient with it. And we're letting it expand. We're not making it expand. Its nature is to expand, to glow, to move, to include. And then the different flavors, you know, as it expands, you'll notice different flavors. So he likens the basic feeling of metta, quality of loving kindness or friendliness, as the sun at midday, especially this time of year where we kind of like midday sun because we're getting over our winter in sort of a bright, warm day, full sun. It just feels great, right? That's basic metta. And then... Karuna, compassion, is sunset. So now the sun, the quality of sun, has a, a really warm color. It's even, in a way, more beautiful than midday sun. right? And very pointed because you know it's going away. So there's that tender quality at the sunset. right? So then, again, just as a visual image as you're there being patient with your feeble or bright glow, whatever you have in that moment, you know, then... Sometimes it will have more of a sunset quality, more warmth to it, more tenderness to it. Right? It will have more of a sense of meeting suffering, being able, being willing to be intimate with suffering. And mudita, that appreciative joy, seeing what's beautiful, seeing what's good, it's like the morning sun. You know, It's been dark for a while, and then the sun comes up, and the birds are chirping, and everything's fresh, and maybe there's dew on things, and sparkly, and... And it's just delightful, right? After a night, 
the morning sun, it's often delightful. When I was young, North, growing up in North Minneapolis, I had a paper boy route, a paper route rather, and uh, you know it wasn't easy to get up. But boy, once I was up, I loved walking around when nobody was around. Maybe you had one too. Yeah, it's just a great thing to be out. It's just delightful, and that's that feeling of appreciative joy. It's delightful. And then equanimity, this is really nice. He, d- he describes it as the reflection of the full moon. Right? There's a coolness to equanimity. Still bright, but it's a reflective light. It's very cool. It has a very sort of chilled out quality. So this, these are the, and you can just notice that in your heart as you're just observing the natural tendency of the heart to expand, to include more and more. These different flavors, it has different textures or different flavors at different times, depending on what we're opening to, like our own you know, emotional qualities or how our life is for ourselves, and then whatever else comes to mind, the people around us or a situation that might come to mind. And then we'll just notice how the heart being nimble, the loving heart being nimble, will express these different qualities. So we'll come back to this next Sunday one more week, but it's we've got a little bit more than 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from some of you. You might have some questions or comments from your own life, your own experience of love. And I think Jeff has the mic. You want to pass it over here? And if you wouldn't mind just saying your name and remember to point the mic right at your mouth. Hi, um, I'm Alex. I recently had a couple couple relationships that I valued kind of blow up in my face um, and I was wondering you know at what point can you say I can because these are things that I've done before you know these are things that I've screwed over people in the same way um, so at what point can you can you say yeah I understand where you're coming from being empathetic and trying to be compassionate to the, that person who's repeatedly hurt you um, and at what point can you say uh, you know enough is enough and uh, show that you're angry and show that you know it wasn't okay um, how can you do that in a because it, it seems like a point of contention in um, studying this stuff is trying to channel some of the more basic primal like angry or sad emotions and do it in a sort of compassionate way and I was yeah. wondering if you had a good kind of measure to do that. Well, one of the interesting questions is, what, is in, what has been in the way of the mind, the body, the heart? So this activity of the body and mind here, the heart here, what's been in the way of the heart, the mind, the body being more expressive, more honest, giving more feedback, previously in the relationship. Because what often happens is we have some idea that anger is bad or saying something that might be hurtful is bad in a relationship. And so what we do is we suppress it and then at some point it explodes and then we say it and then maybe it's not that skillful because of its explosive nature. But still, even then, it might be more skillful than continuing to repress it, right? Because at least something's moving. At least there's an exchange. Now, I'm not encouraging people to yell at each other 
or to act out anger. Anger, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, is always unskillful. But that doesn't mean it's uh, more skillful or more unskillful than continuing to repress it or to be afraid of anger. Because we are going to be irritated. We have needs, you know, and whether we want to have needs or not really doesn't have anything to do with it. We have needs in relationship, sexual needs, needs around affection, needs around like how we're treated. We have all kinds of needs. And it's not personal, these needs. They're just conditioned into the mind, into the personality. And in a perfect world, when we start connecting with someone, we'd say, you know, hey, take a look at this (laughs) this 20-page document. I've made an inventory of my needs. And by the way, it's always changing. (laughs) You know? And, uh, and I guess I'll take a look at your list, too. You know, and we'd study each other's needs, and then we'd take a test before we'd get involved, and I would have to be able to clearly articulate the other person's needs so they really get that I know what their needs are. And then they'd do the same thing, and then we'd have this sort of beginning place where at least we know that we're both needy human beings, and I have some sense of your needs, you have some sense of my needs, so let's check, let's start something here. Let's see what happens. Right? Based on this common ground that we have a sense of being two needy human beings and a sense of what each other's needs are. But we don't do that. So then we, then we hurt each other. We're in relationships. Our needs aren't being met. For whatever reason, we don't know our needs or we're afraid to articulate our needs or something like that. And so the pain of being in the relationship just continues because our needs aren't being met. And it hurts, and it hurts. And it's like pressure building, right? And so eventually that pressure is experienced as frustration, but we don't want to act out the frustration for whatever reason there is there. And so the pressure continues to build. And then eventually we're angry at the person. We have rage. And that doesn't just because we don't know we're angry at the person doesn't mean we're not angry at the person. You know, that sort of, I'm not angry at you, you know that, but yeah, you are angry at me. So it's very natural at some point that something's going to happen. And it's just because it's messy and even just because other people, you know, we get hurt, still it doesn't mean that it's bad that we've acted out the anger. Because at least now there's the possibility of realizing, oh my God, I'm really angry. I'm really angry at this person. I'm really hurt. And then maybe initially it's a burst and not even a very skillful burst, outburst. But then maybe after the next go-round with the person, we could say, I'm really angry and I'm sorry what I said. It was really hurtful, but I just I couldn't stop myself because I'm really angry. And then we might start being able to use more I statements and talk about like some sense of there's anger here. It's my anger. I'm not proud of it, but it's here nonetheless. And I have to let you know about it because we can't have a relationship if I don't let you know that this is here. And I'm working on it, you know. And part of me working on it might be me doing a better job at articulating what my needs are and asking from you so that I know you've heard that I have these needs. And I might even make some requests. And you might be willing to follow through on these requests or you might tell me, no, I can't do that but at least I'm going to take care of myself by making some requests based on the needs I see 
here in me. But it's a real education for us. This is, you know, getting involved in intimate relationships. You can't help. Either you're going to close down or you're going to learn something about your heart and mind. We learn a lot in, in intimate relationships, but it's often not pleasant, surprisingly. You know, if we didn't have a lot of cultural, social conditioning, sexual conditioning around connecting with other beings, you know, we'd probably avoid it because it's so difficult. Other thoughts? Thanks, Alex, for sharing. Yeah, Megan, you want to pass the mic back? I actually wanted to share a poem. It's on my phone, but as you were talking about blessings, you I got to hold it, it close. Though, sorry, Megan. I wanted to share this poem that I heard a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's by John O'Donohue. He was an Irish poet and scholar, and he was a Catholic priest for several years, and he studied the Celtic tradition. Um, but, oh, sorry, this might... And he died at a he, reasonably young age. Yeah, he was 58. But there was a, a really nice interview with him on, on being, um, but he read this poem at the end of it, and it's called... It's called Benacht, which means blessing. It might be in Celtic or like the Irish language. Um, And he wrote it for his mother um, at the time of his father's death. And he said, On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure blue, come to awaken you in a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays, In the crack of thought, and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. So I thought about that. If you send it to Gabe... He'll put it on the blog for us. That's a beautiful poem. You can find it on the internet. It's quite popular. But uh, we'll put it up on the blog, and maybe we'll put Rick's poem up too. That would be good. Good. Thanks, Megan. Other thoughts? We've got a couple minutes. Time for at least one more person. Yeah. I'm going to pass it all the way over to Jay. Well, um, I was touched by what you talked about tonight, um, starting off with the joy. And if you've ever listened to AM radio, I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. Okay. I won't give up my day job. So, um, but in terms of, uh, the meta practice, I've really struggled with this and, um, recently had, um, kind of an epiphany or, or eureka moment when it comes to. Um, like what he was saying, struggling with some of the negative emotions that come up. And um, you had talked about being in that moment where you have some balance of mind, where you're able to examine what you're going through. I've able to do this more lately, and it's like uh, peeling the layers off an onion to get to the kernel as to I'm angry what I'm I'm insecure. Why am I insecure? And a lot of this I've been doing over and over again goes back to um, kind of the core, I think, of meta practice, and that's loving yourself. 
And what I found really, really helpful was sitting and kind of doing like you said with the um, uh, the chance um, starting um, a practice or a, a sitting meditation practice with kind of a uh, mantra of I am lovable exactly as I am regardless of my experience and saying this over and over again and what has really been helpful for me is Develop the sense of resiliency when it comes to these um, emotions that normally would spring up from negative interactions um, with others, and I'm starting to see them now as spiritual teachers, giving me opportunity to really work with um, this practice that we we call meta. And um, so that's been very helpful. That going back kind of the kernel and you really it's really true I'm finding that you can't really love someone else until you love yourself and it's been very helpful for me to start that practice by saying I'm lovable no matter what no matter what the experience no matter what I'm feeling and um, I don't know if everyone else in the room I, I take refuge in the Sangha and so I offer this up as um, in my learning as uh, something for the community, if it's useful, great. Um, but that uh, when these opportunities come up, there's there's something to work with. Yeah, yeah, it's a real Aikido move when working with the difficult stuff because when we have that confidence that Jay talked about, that there's something good here, that I'm lovable no matter what, then when something really difficult comes up, like a lot of rage or a lot of self-hatred even, if we, if we have that kernel of faith that I'm lovable no matter what, then we're willing to do this Aikido move where we realize that, oh yeah, there's a lot of self-hatred and it really hurts and I care about how much this hurts right now. You see? So it's interesting. There, there is this really negative emotion like self-hatred or I hate you or I'm ready to be done with this. And then we notice, oh, that really hurts, honey. And I really care. There's a great line from Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching. He's a very well-known, most of you know him, a very well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk and worldwide teacher. He's, close, he's old now. He's in his mid-80s. But uh, he's got this great phrase, and the way he says it is so just like a transmission. He says, darling, I'm here for you. Right? Now, we can say that to ourselves. You may not say that out loud. <laughs> People will think you're a little weird, but you can say that in your own mind or your own version of that. Darling, I'm here for you. Darling, I care about your suffering. Or use honey, or use something that really cuts through the sort of, uh, sort of hardness of self-judgment, self-hatred that we all have to some degree, you know, just having picked it up just in culture, this sort of judgmental, critical mind. But we need to leave it here. It's 8.30. Just take a moment to let go of the words. Maybe pass the mic over to Tom while we're taking a few breaths together. And of course, the most important thing is just to use our life to experiment with the potential, the possibility of love in a more real, authentic sense. Stripping away the idealism, just seeing it as an actual force, 
powerful force here in the heart. So I look forward to hearing what you've learned next Sunday, if you're able to make it. Thanks for coming, everyone. And Tom has a few announcements for us. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.